Great to have you back in the Trojans Talk podcast. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, I know that our Trojan sports team definitely did. Took some time away from the madness on Thursday, but we are right back in it. And there's no stopping now. It'll be a non-stop grind the rest of the way as this USC coaching search is presumably nearing a conclusion very soon. And, of course, USC has two more games left that I know everyone is uh, super excited and highly anticipatory about. We will not be talking much about the BYU game today. In fact, not at all. But we will cover a lot of other topics as we welcome back two great friends of the Trojan Talk podcast. Two great friends of mine. The Los Angeles Times' Ryan Karchi comes on to discuss the massively in-depth feature story he dropped earlier this week on USC Athletic Director Mike Bone, a story that was really two years in the making for Garchi, and he'll kind of give the background on how that process unfolded, and definitely a lot of work put into that, a lot of perspective, a lot of good insight. I thought that was a great read that all USC fans should check out, and we'll cover a lot of the high points on our discussion on the podcast, but then I would also encourage you to go to the Los Angeles Times website and read that story. Then we will bring in the Athletics' Antonio Morales one of our more recurring guests on the podcast, and always by demand, as the fans say, we want more Antonio on the show, and so you get him. And he and I will be talking about the coaching search, of course, but also what the next coach inherits. We break it down by position, offense, defense, who are the building blocks that are actually in place for this new coach, and where are the major challenges, whoever that coach is. Uh, that was a good discussion. We covered a lot of ground there with him. And that is our show. Now, just because of the everyone has different schedules on Thanksgiving week and there's been a lot of moving pieces, Ryan Karchi and I taped our segment on Tuesday right before we went out to USC football practice. And Antonio and I taped on Wednesday. And then, like I said, uh, Thursday was a holiday for the staff here. And by that, I mean me, who <laughs> enjoyed Thanksgiving with family. So you are getting this podcast on a Friday. And can kind of kick off what could be a very interesting weekend for the USC football program. And again, I'm not talking about the BYU game. Just to update some other developments that have happened since we taped these segments, though, Yahoo's Pete Thamel has reported that he's been told that Baylor is putting together a contract extension for Dave Aranda, that Aranda has made clear that he plans to stay at Baylor through this coaching cycle. Obviously, Dave Aranda has been one of the primary names bantied about by fans and media in this USC coaching search. So if he's truly off the table, that steers even more focus and attention to Iowa State's Matt Campbell, who is playing his last regular season game uh, on Friday as Iowa State takes on TCU on Friday afternoon. So, you know, again, the USC administration has kept everything under wraps, no leaks, Impressive job by them for two and a half months to keep this really in-house. So there's not a lot of verifiable info that's come out that anyone has. We're kind of all in the same boat. So we don't truly know where where they stand with Matt Campbell or where Matt Campbell stands with them. But he's certainly the foremost name at this point in the search for everybody just because it makes the most sense. He's the most high-profile guy that either hasn't said he's staying put or isn't likely headed to the college football playoff like Luke Fickle is 
and therefore he is squarely in the spotlight. And then if it's not him, it'll be interesting. So uh, we'll discuss all that, but the Aranda possible extension news at Baylor had come out after we taped those segments, so I just wanted to refresh that at the top of the show, and you can keep that in mind as we get into our discussions. And with that, let's get it going. Okay, welcome back onto the podcast, Ryan Karchi, the great USC beat writer for the Los Angeles Times. Ryan, how goes it? It's going great. It's going great. Actually, about to uh, head home briefly for Thanksgiving. So, uh, just a wild day before then. Had a press conference with Keenan Christian this morning, and off to USC practice now. You've had a busy, busy week, busy few weeks. You dropped a huge feature on USC Athletic Director Mike Bone on Monday on the Los Angeles Times. I encourage everyone to go read that. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's a great story, and I think that people want to hear a little bit more perspective and your takeaways from reporting that story. First of all, you talk to a lot of people. You talk to Mike Bone's mother, his daughter, people at USC, people elsewhere. You covered all the bases what was the most interesting thing that you learned through that reporting process? You know, to me, uh, what I probably the most interesting look into Bone as a person was just kind of talking to people around Boulder. I actually, uh, before obviously the pandemic shut everything down, uh, I was able to go to Boulder and you know sit down with his mom in person. I actually talked to his brother too. I you know, met a lot of the family there and just hearing about the time that he spent at Colorado really sort of enlightened me as to who he is, kind of at a level maybe deeper than what he shows on the outside. And obviously, you know, he's a you know, blustery, passionate, energetic kind of guy. And, you know, I was skeptical of that of him in that sense, too, at first, uh, generally kind of skeptical of people like that uh, all around. But it was interesting to see how passionate he was about Colorado and how much that place meant to him and just to know the background behind, you know, after he had you know, this tough stretch of hires at Colorado in which, you know, he made three coaches hires, he had to fire three coaches too, and generally was not successful uh, in terms of hiring coaches at, in football, but elsewhere at Colorado, you know, he still had this significant respect. I mean, he is kind of viewed as the one who helped out that basketball program and turned it into what it is today. A lot of people talked about his ushering Colorado from the Big 12 into the Pac-12. Uh, There's just a lot of community-level things that he was able to do in, in terms of you know, connecting the community back to the team, and that's because he was someone who was from that community. And then just to so unceremoniously be fired, just blindsided at the school and obviously he knew his you know he had some fundraising issues uh on certain things and also you know the expectations with football weren't being met but you know it still hit him very hard and it's clear that was a turning point in his career so i just thought that element of you know his past and kind of going through the failure that he did uh it seems seems pretty clear that it shaped him moving on from there absolutely and that was definitely one of the more interesting parts of the story I guess for the listeners, kind of give us the overview of how this all unfolded for you. I know you've been working on this thing for a while. It's kind of taken different shapes, and the pandemic disrupted things. Just kind of give the overview of, of all the work you put into this. 
yeah, I can't, I can't really compare it to any other story in my career, just given the fact that, you know, initially our, our thought was to follow Bone around uh, at a basketball game, which I did. I shadowed him in February 2020. And the idea was to pretty shortly after that write a, a profile of just who this guy was and why he'd made the decision in the first place to keep Clay Helton when it was so obvious that he could have endeared himself to the fan base had he just cut the cord at that point. But, you know, by the time that we talked again in early March, you know, obviously the pandemic, be, you know, kind of delayed that process. And the first thought was to wait and, and see just how he reacted over the course of the pandemic. And then, you know, just other things happened to come up. I'm not going to lie. I mean, obviously, I, you know, we wrote about the song girls and that investigation and that took some precedence while this sort of cooled on the back burner and uh, you know inevitably it just kind of came down to this point where i interviewed him again at the beginning of the season and was actually preparing to write it again shortly after the first game and then well what do you know clay helen gets fired <laughs> right so obviously that changes the narrative again uh so you know, it was a very unique experience in that sense, and I, I honestly had to laugh a little bit. I know there were some USC fans on Twitter tweeting at me, uh, suggesting that you know this was a PR stunt by USC to like push it out right after the UCLA game, and I, I just find that <laughs> hilarious. Mostly, mostly because of anyone kind of pushing for the story to come out. You know, Mike Bone has been pretty patient. Uh, just you know, I, I asked a lot of, out of them. Just, and to their credit, they actually did, you know, talk to me pretty much whenever I'd asked. So uh, they were pretty transparent with this whole process in terms of getting to know Mike, and they had no they had no part in the process uh, in terms of deciding when the story actually came out. We just thought, hey, you know, we, this guy's on the doorstep of making this huge decision. We should, you know, kind of introduce him or just let people in to see who this guy is right before he does make this major decision that will likely define his tenure. Yeah, well, I think it was well worth the wait for everyone who read it. And one of my favorite scenes was kind of what you led with, that scene with you following him around before the first game of the season, and he's introducing himself to people as the new athletic director, and he's been here you know, almost two years at this point. What was your reaction in that moment as he's kind of framing himself that way? Well, it just struck me immediately, uh, just thinking, you know, especially given all the time I'd kind of reported on him and his various decisions, just to hear him sort of introduce him that way, like, I, it was interesting to me, and I remember asking him immediately at the time, and he kind of told me, he's like, well, I, I still feel like I am new, but, you know, I, I haven't done enough or I haven't made the relationships I wanted to, and, you know, I... I think that just kind of speaks to his personality and the way he prefers to do the job. And, you know, obviously all kinds of athletic directors all over the country had difficult situations to step into, but, you know, the, and it's pretty well documented in that story, like the infrastructure of the department and just the morale of the department in general was pretty much in shambles after Lin Swan's resignation. And, you know, just stepping into that situation, that's something you know, fans don't really see, and that's ultimately like a pretty major hindrance behind the scenes that it needs to be figured out before a program can evolve. And you know, obviously, that's kind of the the narrative that Bone has espoused on the coaching search as well. And you know, I think it's a little easier to poke holes in that sentiment, but I think it's pretty clear that 
just with the department itself, it, it was just in a really bad place. And uh, stepping in, it had to have been overwhelming just given all the things that needed to be rebuilt. So I don't envy the job that any athletic director really had over the last year, just kind of talking to other ADs and about the job in general and just found that that initial introduction to be really interesting and you know I, I'd heard other people kind of say that he would said the same thing to people when he was introducing himself so it's clearly something he feels. It's accurate in a way though until he makes this higher there's nothing really to judge him on yet there's been a lot of you know auxiliary stuff and behind the scenes stuff that we've reported on the, the infrastructure of the program this and that but like you said earlier, his tenure is going to be shaped by this decision, who he hires as football coach. And until that happens, he's still kind of a, an unknown commodity in that regard. Going back to a, a point you kind of alluded to, when he first got here, I don't think we realized in the moment how complicated it would have been to fire Clay Helton you know, two weeks into the job and, and hire a coach. Not saying it couldn't have happened, but as we've kind of learned the way he works and you know, he didn't have Brandon Sosna, his right-hand man, here yet. He didn't really have any team around him. He didn't know his department. He was, you know, in the process of getting rid of three senior-level executives in the, in the athletic department. That would have been a really hard process to go through as you're just getting settled in. A valid point looking back on it as to maybe why that wasn't a conducive time to make that move then. Yeah, I think you made a lot of good points. I mean, it... There were so many moving parts at that point. And then, you know, you add in the the fact that this massive buyout was in place. Now, I don't think that's obviously the only reason. Um, I think it's kind of a confluence of all of those things. You know, this isn't making excuses for Bone, but it's another difficult situation coming after the following season, after the pandemic. And I actually think it probably would have been easier to, to fire Clay in that first, those first, that first stretch when after the 2019 season, then it would have been after 2020 when you, you know, look at this, the program coming out of a shortened season out of the pandemic. There wasn't really a coaching carousel last season, and you know we're talking about a team that was five and one that had just gone to the Pac-12 championship game, and you know while the obviously the results even in that five and five and zero oh stretch didn't look great, uh, you could still point to the fact that they were five and zero. Oh. So. Yeah. You know, the context of the situation has always fascinated me because, you know, obviously this fan base looks at the situation and thinks, well, obviously Clay Helton could have been fired at this time and this time and this time, but the context of that is a little bit more complicated. And I I suppose you could say, like, someone who came in and, you know, brashly made the decision to get rid of, of Clay and kind of put their stamp immediately on it, that that's possible but you know it's also difficult to sort of rebuild that while everything is still ongoing and uh, I think you know that that would have been a tough job for anyone and Mike Bonin's definitely you know had to face that criticism over the course of the last two years and you know it's something that he hears it's not something that uh, he completely deflects but it's always fascinated me about him and that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to write the story in the first place was just that he had this layup of a decision in the eyes of the fan base, and he just didn't take it. Yeah, And I think that has since colored every decision that he's made. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to be a PR mouthpiece for the company line from the athletic department on why this stuff didn't happen earlier, but 
I'm just saying I, I do see the context. I, I do see the points. The fans, of course, then look at a school like Florida that uh, Dan Mullen has a, has a rough month and a half, and they eat a $12 million buyout to get rid of him you know, a year after a really good season. So different business is done in the SEC and other parts. But going back to Bowen's decision to take the job in the first place, I know you talked to a bunch of people. You talked to his daughter about the conversations they had. What sense did you get for how tough of a decision it was for him to make at that time? You know, for him, I, I actually don't know that it was that tough of a decision. I think, you know, as he's kind of proven through the course of his career, like, he has ambitions. Uh, he's, you know, he's always kind of looking for a bigger challenge. And, you know, there were certain stops where, you know, he probably could have spent more time there to kind of finish what he started, but he jumped up to another job. I know at San Diego State, I think it's probably the best example. Like, he was quite well liked there and was kind of moving the program out of a time of turmoil and you know kind of out of nowhere after I think it was two years or maybe three years by that point uh, left for uh, for Colorado now granted that's a, a job I think he just couldn't turn down given his connection I did find it interesting you know just in talking to his daughter Mikey and his mentor Chuck Dinas uh, both of them clearly played a big part in just conversations with him and I know Chuck kind of told me that uh, that he knew Mike from the beginning was kind of determined to take on a challenge and I, I really do think that you know the massive challenge that USC represented was actually a plus to him in that sense now it worried some of his family namely his daughter Mikey and she kind of expressed that to me and said that she told him you know, there's going to be scrutiny. Like, are she worried about that? She, the whole family had kind of fallen in love with Cincinnati by that point. But it was clear to her, and it seems clear to the rest of the family that, you know, he felt like he maybe hit his ceiling uh, of what he could do at Cincinnati. And he was just kind of the type that was ready for uh, a new, bigger challenge. And he took on one of the biggest challenges in college sports, I think. Absolutely. And, and, you outlined in the story, and you mentioned it on the podcast here, some of the unsuccessful hires he made at Colorado, football-wise. Obviously, his crowning achievement is hiring Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. What did you learn about maybe how he evolved in that process of hiring coaches and what we can glean from the Luke Fickle hire that maybe applies now to the task that he's currently working on? You know, what I found interesting was that you can kind of see just looking at how the Colorado hires were made, especially uh, how things changed when he got to Cincinnati when he made the Luke Fickle hire. You know, he, he hires Dan Hawkins, was his first hire at Colorado. And Hawkins was, you know, a major candidate. At that point, you know, just getting him at Colorado was seen as a huge win for the program. Now, obviously, it didn't work out. Uh, you know, Bone kind of famously there said that, called it a home run hire. Uh, and it really, you know, definitely just record-wise did not bear out that way. But from there, you know, first he hires the, the major candidate that everyone's trying to hire. Second, you know, he hires John Embry, who you know, was a former Colorado player. Uh, clearly, you could see that the influence of kind of the Colorado community, alumni, and, you know, specific people at the university had been felt on the hire and that there was kind of this feeling that they wanted to get back to the Bill McCartney days. 
who coached Embry. So Embry comes in with no head coaching experience, kind of as, you know, a, a homeschool hire. And that went absolutely horribly over the course of two seasons. And, you know, I think Bone was rightly criticized for how that failed and then quickly kind of pulling the plug on Embry, who did not take it very well uh, in a scathing press conference as he left. And then you look at Mike McIntyre, kind of a, a different candidate in that sense. He was a smaller school success story uh, who Bone had had his eye on. And, you know, Bone didn't actually end up seeing him coach a football season. He was like, oh, before McIntyre started. But, you know, of those three hires, arguably McIntyre was the best. But then you see him come to Cincinnati and with Luke Fickle, you know, there was a lot less focus on, you know, what outside influence wanted. I, I think, you know, you could say that Brandon Sosna had an impact on that, uh, just coming in and affecting the search and bringing a more data-driven approach to the whole thing that kind of cut through the noise and the bias of everything else. And, you know, everything I've heard about the USC search uh, this time around is that, you know, it's more closely followed that mold. I know when I spoke with Bone last, he said that that was one thing he learned most Fickle Hire was that, you know, there was so much to be gained out of taking that data-driven approach, and I, you know, I, I would imagine that it's kind of played out the same way with this one. So, and I know it, it's been pointed out to me by people at USC just the irony that you know when Luke Fickle was hired at Cincinnati, no one really seemed to like the hire. It was kind of seen as like yeah. a B, B minus C plus hire, and now ironically, in LA, which is as far as possible from. Cincinnati, he's seen as a home run hire. So uh, it's just kind of how the coaching carousel works, and you can see how that bias kind of is affected, and it it helps to be able to cut through that. This may be hard to answer. I I don't know what kind of conversations you've had, but the people you've talked to on the record, off the record, uh, around the university, what sense do you get for the internal confidence that exists for Bone in, in, in this really pivotal decision? I mean, from the employees that I spoke with, especially the administrators that are still there, there's a lot of confidence. It's not lost on them just the difference in having, you know, I, this phrase is used a lot with me, a professional athletic director. Right. Um, one who has experience, you know, leading a coaching search or literally just adds any sort of direction at all to the department. And I think the change has been so stark over the course of the last year, especially that, you know, I think that alone has kind of propelled people to feeling that there is confidence with bone. Now I think all of that can change immediately if this hire doesn't go well. I think that's ultimately what his entire tenure is kind of going to be defined by. Like I said before, is just, you know, for all the small changes that were made. And I think we've, you know, giving them proper amount of credit for the changes they made in that sense. But, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter if, you know, you can say as much about the infrastructure and how any good coach is going to fail if they don't have it. But ultimately, you know, if that coach fails anyway, then everything becomes a failure. Uh, So that's kind of the cloud looming over everything now. And that's, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that attitude starts to change after a coach is actually hired. Yeah, I mean, you, you can say it for any coaching search that you, you can't afford to, to, to miss or mess up, but in this case, USC really has no margin for error on this hire. 
just given where the program's at, how far it slid, what we saw last week, and just kind of emblematic of all of that, that they really have to nail this. It's going to be fascinating to see how it turns out. I do have confidence in Bone and Sauce, and just based on everything we've seen to this point. But like you said, that's all kind of around the fringes, and the ultimate equation is is all about this hire. So if this hire doesn't work out, all the other stuff uh, becomes just window dressing on a collapsing house, so to speak. We'll see what happens there. Well, just last two questions for you. I, I know you, you had so much material after all these interviews and all this reporting, and you can't fit everything into into the story. What was the most interesting thing that you left out that, that kind of hurt you to have to cut out of the story or leave on the cutting room floor? Hmm, that's a tough question. You know, well, Bone has a lot of great stories that I, I think are, you know, just interesting on their own, and you know, he's just kind of a natural storyteller in that sense. But uh, I think, in terms of like actual content, uh, I was able to sit down with him at, in September 2020, and it was the the first time after the pandemic that we talked a lot, or that we were able to sit down in person and talk for the story. And kind of at that point, I I'd envisioned part of it being you know, how he handled the pandemic. And there was a lot through that process that I thought was interesting, just how he kind of asserted himself in the conference picture. And again, just something that sort of stood in such stark contrast to Lin Swan, who didn't really concern himself with anything at the conference level and sort of left that to Steve Lopes. But in Bone's case, he was aggressively asserting himself in the picture of you know, whether the season was going to be played and, you know, just kind of sitting with him and, and hearing him talk about all of the the hoops that they needed to jump through and, like, all the things that needed to come together all at once for a season to happen, I found really interesting and, you know, I don't know, maybe someday it'll be used. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, uh, my editors weren't super happy with the 3,500-word uh, feature on its own so five thousand words i think would have made them pretty squeamish i have not made a lot of friends on the edit staff i think at least with the copy editors well well just lastly uh we can't close this conversation without at least getting some thought on where things stand in this coaching search and i'm not asking for a prediction but i'll leave it open-ended what's your pulse on where we're at right now with the search you know, I, I think we're at an interesting point, uh, especially in hearing just a lot of recent buzz for Iowa State's Matt Campbell. And, you know, his name had been so quiet, almost con- conspicuously quiet yeah. over the course of, of the search. And you know, now all of a sudden that talk picks up and, you know, Iowa State is a team that's going to be done after this weekend. So it's possible, I guess, you know, leading out of this BYU game, that if it is Campbell, um, maybe we get an announcement of that pretty quickly. But that said, you know, I I know (laughs) there's a flavor of the week kind of uh, in coaching carousel processes like this always, but you know, I still just think Dave Aranda makes a ton of sense. And uh, just his Southern California connection, the way they almost hired him as defensive coordinator, it was clear that he was someone who was very much on their radar before. And uh, to me, that has always made a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, there's certainly interest um, in that. And I, I am curious to see where that goes. But, you know, LSU and Florida really 
throw a wrench into that whole situation, it kind of makes the timing question even more important. And that's how you wonder someone like Campbell, is there a necessity to move quickly if if he is the guy? And you know, he certainly has more experience than Aranda on that front. And I think either would be very intriguing candidates. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how things play out over the next week. I think uh, the pressure is going to be ramping up soon. Yeah, well, I've had Matt Campbell as my as my one B, the fickle, this whole search. But anyways, Ryan, great story, great interview on the podcast here. We appreciate it, and we'll see you at practice. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, next into the show, also returning a preferred Trojan Talk podcast guest, the Athletics, Antonio Morales. Antonio, how are you? Good. How's everything going, Ryan? It's it's going. The season's almost over, and that's pretty much all any of us can ask for at this point. Do you have your countdown clock and everything set up at this point, or how's that going? Yes, I have a massive clock on the wall that that, that counts down the seconds and minutes and hours left in this season. So much to cover, uh, despite there being nothing worth talking about from the game last weekend. But you put together a poll of USC parents football parents about their thoughts on the coaching search, what they want, what they are hoping for. What was the most striking uh, conclusion you, you took away from, I think it was 16 parents you talked to? Yeah, yeah, I think nearly half of them said uh, Luke Fickle was you know the, the, coach, the coaching hire that would excite them the most. I, I just think I was surprised too by like how unpopular, I know he signed his extension yesterday, but just how unpopular Gavin Franklin was um, as a candidate too. I know his his buzz for USC kind of cooled uh, as he had that losing streak in the middle of the season, but uh, he wasn't a very popular um, candidate either. And just talking to them about the program and stuff, it's clear they think the new coach needs to instill some discipline. You know, the stuff we see on Saturday is more discipline, more accountability. And, and stuff like that. I think they want to see their kids get developed and they want to see their kids get pro ready, be pro ready. And obviously that's something USC has been lacking uh, the past couple of years with their draft numbers and, and how some of these four and five stars come in and some don't get drafted, some fall to the fifth or sixth round. Um, so I think that's clearly something that's on the mind of parents. What's been interesting to me is just how, uh, more open and candid people have gotten about venting about this season, whether it's Brett Nealon on Saturday kind of laying things bare and saying maybe it's the culture that's been established here. Uh, even Dante Williams has been a little more uh, outwardly critical about things, but the parents on Twitter have not held back. I, I, I posted that clip of Brett Nealon given his assessment of things, and I think you know several parents either replied or retweeted it and chimed in. Yeah, there's frustration abound everywhere. Going back to the results of your poll, yeah, the Franklin thing was has been an interesting subplot through this coaching search and that I think you would agree. I don't really think that he's been front of mind for USC, and yet the national perception has been that he's been like the guy this whole time. Yeah, I had a coworker uh, reach out to me the other day, and they were like, "Is do they not want him? I was like, I don't, I don't think – that's he's been a front runner for a while, and maybe it's the beginning of the search uh, when they're five and zero or something. But like, I don't think he's been like a front runner, at least not in the fans' minds. Definitely not in the fans' minds for for a while. 
teams. I think people just kind of assumed like, oh, Franklin and USC, but I don't think it's been that way for months. Yeah, I've done a couple interviews during this time, and and the person will go, we got to talk about the coaching search, uh, all the buzzes that James Franklin's going to be the guy. Is that how you're feeling? I'm like, no, <laughs> not not at all. But uh, I guess it was enough for his agent to uh, to use and leverage. So good for him. As I did with Ryan Karchi in the previous segment, I'm not going to ask you to predict anything, but I will ask you with an open-ended question about it. And what is your pulse on where things stand right now with the search? Yeah, I've just been interested to, to see the fans' reactions to some things. Uh, you know, it's not all the fans. It's just only some. It's a, it's a vocal minority where it's like, where it used to be like, oh, anyone but Clay Helton, then it's like, read the fine print, and it's like, anyone but Matt Campbell, too. And, and uh, see how some just don't like the potential of him being hired when he's a good coach, and he's done a really good job at Iowa State. So that's been kind of funny to watch over the past couple of days or so, but I think uh, I think someone like him or Dave Aranda would do really well uh, at USC, and it's and it's just interesting to see kind of people's reactions to both. I think you know, everyone was mad when Clay Helton went 13 and 12 over like a two game over a two season stretch, and now you know everything's fine with right. hiring a coach who's 11 and nine over the past two years. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I think James Franklin's record is something similar over the past two years at Penn State. That was a no go, but Aranda's suddenly you know, the, the fan favorite. Um, but I think he would do well at USC. Obviously, recruiting and stuff like that would be a question because you know there's just not a lot of data to go off of with him and Matt Campbell when it comes to recruiting Southern California. But I, I think I think both would do well, and USC would be fortunate to have either as their head coach. But uh, it's been it's been quiet on on the USC front. This this search and the lack of leaks just has me kind of thinking about how this coaching search in particular produces so much content and so little information. And it's been a, it's it's been funny to watch. It really has been. I'm glad you said all that though, because I've been trying to make that point on the board for a couple of weeks now about just the perception of Aranda and and Campbell, and it's I I keep prefacing it by saying I'm not anti-Aranda at all. I think he'd be a really intriguing hire. I'm just amused at that the perception is that Dave Aranda is a perfect candidate with no flaws uh, despite having gone 2-7 and seven last season and now having one good season as a head coach. And Matt Campbell is not a good candidate because he's winning 8-9 and nine games a year at Iowa State until this year perhaps. So, listeners, subscribers to the board, I'm not the only one making this point i have some backup i appreciate that and, and it's just like okay like they were, uh, matt campbell's only won nine games and i would say like okay if he would have had a regular season last year he would have had two non two non-conference games he probably would have won 10 or 11 um if dave aranda has a couple more seasons at baylor he'd easily go seven and five next year or eight and four in two years and People's will suddenly lose their enthusiasm for him. Um, so, like, I, I, people, I think people get caught up a lot in one season and how how one season is going without without kind of taking into the context that this is not how the administration is going to think about it. Yeah. Um, and well, the the good ones won't think about it that way, and the bad ones 
the bad ones do, but it's never going to be a, a one-season thing. I've had Matt Campbell at 1B on my list from the start of the search, and yet if they end up with him, there's going to be fans who are disappointed by it. And the other false narrative that I've had to correct is Matt Campbell would be a lazy hire for USC. I'm like, guys, like he's been at the top of every hot board for every open job in the country for like five years. Colleges, NFL teams have failed to pry him away from Ames, Iowa. If USC does it, that's a major win in this search, not a lazy hire. It's just It is really fascinating. Yeah, I remember four years ago when I was going on Mrs. Coaching Search. This was just when his kind of stock was starting to rise, and uh, those fans are really wanted their administration to go for him too and try to get him, but he wasn't going to leave Iowa State. And obviously, I think I think the Jets were interested a couple of years ago, and I think the Lions offered. And I'm sure he's going to get more NFL buzz. I think people usually compare him to a Matt Rule type, uh, so I don't think it's a it's a lazy hire at all. I think USC would be. Like I said, would be fortunate if they hired him. Yeah. My favorite stats, and I probably had four Matt Campbell discussions on this podcast, so I won't belabor the points too much, but we had a pretty long and lively thread on the board this week at Trojan Talk, and I kind of pull up all the data again and, and tried to make my case as to why this would be a great thing for USC. My favorite stats are, though, that in the last 42 seasons – Iowa State has four seasons of eight or more wins. Three of those are Matt Campbell. One of my subscribers found the stat that he has 34% of their all-time wins against ranked teams or something like that. He finished the season ranked in the top 25 poll three times in history, uh, one with him, and they had never been higher than 19th before he took over. They were ninth last year. I mean, you can go on and on and on put in context how special it is what he's done in this football wasteland that is Ames, Iowa. But uh, it's very fascinating. So, Campbell, Aranda, you're Mike Bone. You can get both guys. Who are you picking? Uh, I said a couple weeks ago, somebody asked me, I was like, I think I'd go with Matt Campbell. And this was, I think, I said that even with Luke Fickle, you know, somewhat still on the board then and not like in the playoffs yet. I, I think I would call Matt Campbell just because, like you said, of how hard it is to win at Iowa State. Um, and it's just a very, very difficult thing to do. And you already mentioned the stats. And look at Baylor. <laughs> they, they won under Bryles. They won under Matt Rule. Uh, they're winning now under David Aranda. People have, have won there before. It's a good program. Um, not to take anything away from Aranda, but uh, the people have had success there. It's been it's worked over time. Um, Iowa State hasn't. I think that really speaks to the effect and the impact that Matt Campbell has had over there in, in the coaching job he's he's done. Um, but obviously I could see if people wanted Aranda as well, the Southern California ties, I, I think that um, that might win some people over and be a, a deciding factor in some fans' minds over why they would want him over uh, Matt Campbell. But um, if I had to go with one, I think I'd call uh, Matt Campbell first. Yeah, uh, me too. I think everyone knows that by now. <laughs> but personally, though, I'd still be surprised if he ends up at USC. I just, until I see it happen, I'm just not going to believe it's going to happen. So um, we'll see. We're going to find we're going to find out very soon because Matt Campbell's not playing for a conference championship, and their regular season ends this weekend, 
And if he's your guy and you've had two and a half months to, to vet and work through this process and back channel and you have some sense for where things stand, if he's your guy, that should logically happen a few days after this weekend, would you think? Yeah, yeah, I would think that would fall into that timeline. I don't know if it would be Sunday, even though even though some searches move move that fast. I remember, I, I think, at 2017, that I covered at Ole Miss. Uh, they hired a coach Sunday, which was two or three days after their season ended. Um, I think Florida hired Mullen that Sunday as well, and that was a day after their season ended. Um, so these things typically can move pretty fast. So I would think after, I would think uh, all bets are off starting Sunday um, as as far as uh, when this thing could happen. by. yeah, and, and it works in the the uh, alternate way as well. If, if there's not a hire early next week, then maybe the tea leaves are telling us it's not Matt Campbell. So we shall see. One more question on the search, and let me get your perspective on this because it's been another raging topic on the board. All these massive contracts flying around now. Michigan State's panic move to keep Mel Tucker. Penn State's, I don't even know what to call it, move to keep James Franklin for the next decade at uh, exorbitant cost. The fans are assuming that that's now the price for a head coach and that USC is going to have to pay $9 million, $10 million a year or give a eight-year contract. I just don't think the market has changed overnight. I think those were panic-induced situations by schools that did not want to have to start over. Um, what do you think USC is going to have to pay, just ballpark-wise, to get a Matt Campbell or a Dave Aranda? Well, I think Clay Helton was making around $5 million, so I think you start there for someone who's going to be supposed to be the upgrade. Um, so I think you at least start at $5 million and then work your way up from there. I feel like I, I remember laughing with somebody about the Mel Tucker contracts when Michigan State hired him because <laughs> I think he was making around five or six million dollars after a five and seven season in Colorado. Yeah. Um, so he's he's caught them at their most desperate points um, uh, with their search because he told them no initially and they needed somebody really in there really fast. So he was making a lot of money before that. And then obviously he was nine and one or whatever, and they thought they needed to keep him. At, at a higher price he's getting the Jimbo Fisher contract without the national championship <laughs> and uh, so um, I thought that was obviously a kind of desperate move and I think the same thing with Penn State I think uh, I think James Franklin's a good coach but uh, you're giving these guys market prices without market results and uh, that's how you get in trouble as an administration and um, so but I do think there is some resetting going on. I don't know if it'll be in full force this cycle, um, but I, I think we're in the process of seeing some of these salaries rise and uh, seeing bigger numbers coming out of these coaching contracts. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I just think that there's going to be a, a middle ground between where things were and some of these flashy headline deals and where where kind of the mean settles in. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if USC had to pay in the $7 million range, but I, I don't think that you have to give a, a Jimbo Fisher contract to get a coach these days. The real interesting thing, though, is is what if USC cannot convince Matt Campbell to move his nice Midwestern family to uh, gritty Los Angeles and cannot convince Dave Aranda to come home 
then where does this thing go? That's what I was thinking about yesterday as well. I was talking with somebody about it, and I don't really know where, where they go. Uh, do you go to Kalani Sataki at BYU? Um, uh, I think he might be the best available after, or not available, but like the best option um, after that. After, after those two, it gets really tough as to who to peg um, into that mix. And that's obviously assuming Luke Fickle's off the board because Cincinnati's in the playoff or whatever. Um, but. Um, yeah, I, I want to know, like, who, who do you think would be an option at that point? So there's been a lot of Kyle Whittingham buzz. And, um, again, I've been very careful this whole time to couch everything I say and uh, that it's, you know, mostly connecting dots and and opinion. Uh, I'm definitely not reporting anything because <laughs> there's no primary sources to be had. Uh, but there's been some buzz that is compelling at least from his end, that uh, people could see him making that move if he were offered that job, which I didn't necessarily think at the beginning of the search. I kind of thought he was just going to, at this point, ride it out to the finish line there uh, or, or retire soon. But I do think that he would at least be an option for USC if they wanted to go that route. There was decent response on the board about that. I, I don't know if it's going to win the press conference like the other two would. Uh, Sataki's interesting. I mean, is, is he coaching for the, for this job this weekend if he comes in and lays a UCLA smackdown on the Trojans? Does that vault him up the rankings? I, I really don't know, but uh, Whittingham is kind of the one name that stands out to me at this point. Uh, I could see Sataki rising up in that. I just I can't conjure anybody else now. I mean, we had Bill O'Brien on the board early in the search. I just, I just don't see that, and I, I don't know where else to go with it. And I, I have to imagine that guys like Mike Bone and Brandon Sosna, who are who are pretty thorough, uh, have a list of more than three names. And I would love yeah. to see what those names are one day, but I just don't know. Yeah, same. I think it's it's a mystery after that point. Um, obviously, Franklin's off the board, and um, you know it's just hard to come up with candidates. So that's why this coaching carousel this coaching cycle is going to be so interesting because there's big time jobs open but not not a lot of big time coaches available so uh, it's going to be fascinating to see like the game of musical chairs and who gets left out is it going to be in a usc is it going to be an lsu is it going to be a florida uh i've seen a lot of buzz among reporters today about mark stoops at lsu and i think mark stoops is a good coach but that's not going to be an example of somebody winning the press conference either after all this talk about Scott Woodward going for Jimbo Fisher and Lincoln Riley. Yeah. Um, if you if you hire Mark Stoops, uh, nobody's going to be excited about that. Um, and yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what they and Florida do as well. And um, it's it's going to be a fascinating coaching search, especially with so many open jobs. Yeah, it's a great point to keep in mind that not all these schools are going to win this thing. So if USC gets a Matt Campbell, then they've claimed one of the very few instant winners. I don't mean that to guarantee success, but instant winners at the press conference of the national perception of the surge. And there just aren't many of those guys out there. And there are more big jobs and there are big time coaches available. You know, we're hearing, you know, a lot of buzz for Billy Napier with the LSU and Florida jobs and uh, Lane Kiffin down there. 
but beyond the names that we've mentioned, it's just the, the pool of candidates is just not very big, and someone's going to come up short in the search, and you, USC fans just better hope it's not the Trojans because, as I was saying on the first segment with Karchi, you know, you can say that every program can't afford to miss on a coaching hire, but USC really can't afford to miss. Like, the stakes could not be higher for Mike Bone that this has to work because this program cannot go backwards any further. It also cannot stagnate any further, or recovery is going to be really difficult. They have to start moving forward quickly, uh, starting in the next couple of weeks, like with a tone-setting coach and who's going to rally recruiting and, and start changing the culture, as we hear about all the time, of this program. So very, 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 very big stakes, very interesting search, and it'll be fascinating to see the reaction if we get into Thursday of next week and there's been no hire. And if we go into the middle of the next week and there's no hire, then it's just going to be pure panic. But I'm going to assume that we won't get there and that there is a plan in place and that they know where things stand and uh, they're not going to be scrambling in a week and a half trying to find a candidate. That's just my assumption. Yeah, I think they have a plan. Obviously, their last uh, football coaching search in Cincinnati went well, so we'll see you know, what they do this time. Obviously, it's a different stage and a different program, but you know, I think it'll be, it'll be interesting no matter what. So it's going to be interesting to see how these players respond to a new coach as well next year. And if we get to talk to the players before a search, like say they hire someone next week and we get to talk to the players after the Cal game about a new coach, uh, that'd be interesting slash weird. <laughs> but uh, but uh, we'll see how it goes. For a lot of the guys, it's going to be just cautious optimism that this could mean better things for them and that they were frustrated with the previous staff. Like, like a Rajon Davis, who's probably just at the peak of frustration with the way things have gone this season. Uh, I assume that he's hoping that maybe a new coach comes in and immediately realizes that he should be playing and uh, things change for him. And it's going to be that way for a lot of guys. And then there's going to be guys that find out quickly with a new regime that they don't really fit into the picture. And that's when you're going to have the wave of transfer portal uh, exodus. But I do think everyone should at least wait and see uh, and get to know the new staff and see where they stand. But uh, not everyone will. That's just the nature of college football. And so we're going to be tracking assistant coaching hires, coaching departures, player departures, uh, furious finish the recruiting uh, finish line of early signing day. It's going to be madness in December. Let's move forward into the future and think about what this new coach is inheriting. We'll talk about both sides of the ball. But let's just start with the forsaken defense that we watch week after week. If new coach comes in, he's going through the stats, going through the tape from the season. Who is he marking down in Sharpie? This, this is a guy I'm building around for not only 2022, but the future. Uh, I think you start with Thule. Yes. I think Thule's defense has been a mess, and he hasn't had as many. He hasn't had a ton of flash plays, but I think he's been okay. He's been solid. Um, so I think he's the one you know you're going to get effort every play, pretty much. And um, I, I think you start with him, and then other than that, it's, it's tough. <laughs> um, I, I think we've seen flashes out of Kalen Bullock. Um, I, I think that's going to take some more coaching and more development. But I think he has the potential to be a guy you can build around in the secondary. Um, I've liked what I've seen from him at times this year. 
Um, there's been some some lows, but I think there's been some intriguing highs. Um, other than that, I think you have to fi- you have to figure out what you have with Corey Foreman and Rajon Davis because those are the guys who are supposed to be those guys, those building blocks, those foundational pieces um, next year. So you have to figure out what happened with those guys this year. Was it just a coaching staff thing? Was it a player thing? That, that new coach will have to figure it out. And um, the secondary has really struggled. So they're going to have to look at that too. And all these young corners that Dante Williams brought in last year and see which one is really ready to play. Has Sierra right made enough progress? Um, because I think I think we all saw he was kind of he had a long way to go in training camp. Yeah. You know how much ground has he made up? And um, because this this corner group needs an upgrade as well, so it's it's a lot of different areas to look at on that side of the ball. Yeah, I think if I'm the new coach, uh, Thule is obviously a foundation piece. I think that you know that you can start Nick Figueroa for another year and and have a service, serviceable guy there. I think I would be intrigued by the safety tandem of Bullock and Xavier Alford, who's getting a chance finally and shows some really great instincts and obviously has three picks the last two games. Uh, you mentioned Bullock. Is, it's been an up-and-down season. I mean, he, he really came on strong. We thought that he might have been USC's best defensive back after his first game. Uh, but that's more speaking to the overall secondary than his true readiness. But I, I think that there are pieces there. But then you're really – starting over at places and you're gonna have to really reassess the entire linebacker picture you're gonna have to reassess the entire cornerback picture I guess we, we don't know if Chris Steele comes back or, or tries to move on uh, I, I guess we don't know with Isaac Taylor Stewart either but he certainly just can't run this thing back as is there really are to me only three or four names that I'm certain I would feel good about starting next year and that's a scary thought, uh, and that's why I think that fans know that there has to be patience in this and that it's not going to be an overnight fix It's because of where things have gotten to. Uh, on the offensive side, is it any less bleak, and is it any more promising if you're the new coach taking over this USC offense next year? Uh, I think Jackson Dart's a solid yep. building block, and I think that provides some optimism, but uh, – you know, with defense, I think you need to look at the portal for a real nose tackle. And I think on offense, you have to look in the portal, even though they did it this year. <laughs> I think you need to look in the portal for some receivers. Um, just because these guys just haven't been good enough this year, no matter who the quarterback is. Um, these There's just not a lot of dynamic playmaking in this receiver group. Could somebody develop into that? Sure. Uh, but right now, and what we've seen in games, aside from Gary Bryant last week there hasn't been a ton of playmaking and ton of explosiveness so I think that'll be one of the the major areas of concern uh, for this team I think running back's going to be an interesting situation as well just because they're probably losing Keontae Ingram I'd guess and going to lose Vi so it's Barlow and Campbell and who else really so they're going to need to go in the portal and get someone there probably as well. I think the offensive line, I think the offensive line hasn't been great this year, and I get why people complain about it, but it's been much better than I thought it'd be. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but still at that point, I think you, you're going to lose Jimmins. You could lose Voorhees. Um, you could lose Nealon. Um, so you might only have Cortland Ford and uh, Jonah Monheim back next year. 
Um, and those are two of the more experienced guys this year, and they aren't starting right now. It's a, it's a makeshift situation all around, uh, pretty much for this whole team, uh, but particularly on offense. Yeah, I, I, I think receiver gives me the most concern because, like you said, I think Jackson Dart has shown a lot to this point, and fans are excited about him as the future of that position. I think that Darwin Barlow will be a fine lead running back next year. I know that there were people who thought that he was the most talented back on this team this year, and not that he should have been playing over anybody, but just that his upside and ceiling were as high as anyone on the roster. And so you feel good entering next year with him getting a full chance. Certainly everyone will miss Keontae Ingram, who's been uh, hands down the best offseason addition, uh, be it through recruiting or, or transfer portal. So that worked out well, and you'll miss him. But I think that Darwin Barlow works. We don't know what Brandon Campbell's going to be yet. And then it's, it's the depth. You just worry about the depth because I don't know that they're going to be able to rally in this class and get a, a top running back. They had four-star Jade Knott on campus last weekend for an official visit. Uh, he's really their best lead at this point. And if they don't get him, are they going to scramble and take a three-star kid from from somewhere who's committed to a lower program at this point? Or are they going to trust the portal? Or uh, We'll see, but the depth there is a concern. Michael Trigg is a guy that I would pencil in and feel great about being a cornerstone of this offense. I think if he hadn't gotten hurt, he would probably be their number one or two receiver at this point of the season. So you feel good there. And on the offensive line, I think we talked to Brett Nealon yesterday a little bit about whether he's going to come back. And he didn't say definitively, but he was kind of leaning towards likely coming back, which would be a good stabilizing force up there. You hope that the upside that we thought was there with Cortland Ford and Jenna Monheim is still there. And they're at least guys that have played and have certainly learned from their experiences this year. And if you return a Didich, you know, at least you have some pieces there. Uh, I think it would be a regression from what they have this year, which is not ideal, but it's the, it is the receivers that really scare me. And uh, I think Gary Bryant can be a, a number two receiver probably I don't know if he's going to be a a number one in the way that USC is used to having number ones in the the Drake London and Michael Pittman and even throwing Amon Ra in that mix I just don't know if he's gonna be that guy so yeah there's a lot of work to do on that side too it's it's gonna be a rebuild folks it's not gonna happen right away yeah there's definitely gonna be some patience that needs to be required and I know people will say you know what if the right coaches come in and they should win the Pac-12? I was like, oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, but it's going to be tough. Eh? There's not going to be a 300-pound nose tackle that, you know, some coaches to be able to grow into. Um, so, No, there's going to be a 380-pound nose tackle named Maximus Gibbs. <laughs> uh, your favorite, Max Gibbs. He's, um, he's really been one of the pleasant stories of this year. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch his future as well, um, to see kind of where he lands and what a new coach does with him. But uh, I think the fact that Max has played as much as he has on defensive line kind of says where the season's gone <laughs> and to kind of, uh, you know, what the expectations for this freshman class were and kind of what what what's played out in reality. So, um, you know, the, the new coach will have a lot of work to do. No, that's another great point. If you were writing the 
obituary of this season and or, or the, the time capsule story for people to look back on 20 years from now and understand how this happened, there would definitely be a line in there that would say a freshman third-string offensive guard became the most intriguing nose tackle on the team midway through the season. <laughs> it's just it's the reality of things. Well, I, I kind of want to close with that, with this freshman class and just how the reality has met expectations and obviously um, – you know, we can start with Corey Foreman and Ray John Davis. But I just remember after last year's signing class putting together, uh, you know, columns on the five freshmen we expect to make the biggest immediate impact. And I probably whiffed on all of them. I, I, I may have had Michael Jackson third in that top five, and he's at least playing football, which is good. But I also am certain that I had Corey Foreman, Ray John Davis, I probably even put Mason Murphy in there because I thought that he he might become a rotational piece. Uh, I was off. I was very off. What's been the surprises to you of, of kind of expectation versus reality with the freshmen? Yeah, I, I think you were the only one who was off, so don't feel too bad about it. Um, uh, yeah, obviously, I thought I thought Corey could have had um, a Drake Jackson type freshman season, not where he's getting like ten sacks or something, but maybe like five. You know, four or five, and that would kind of mirror what Drake did his freshman year. But whether it's been Corey adjusting to the college game and having that year off, the coaching staff not getting the most out of him or not really connecting with him, uh, just hasn't been there. Um, and I think that's been a surprise to everybody, and it's been a really disappointing season uh, for him. And it's hard to kind of say with Rajon just because we haven't seen Rajon. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, so we haven't even had the opportunity to see, so we don't even know what's really there uh, with him. I think the, the thing is watching these linebackers play. I, I know Kanai plays really hard, and, and the coaches value that. Um, but you're giving up 600 yards of offense to UCLA and 40 points every home game. Could it really be worse with Rajon in there? Uh, like and right now we just don't know just because we don't get the chance to see him play and uh, so I think yeah, like, I, like I mentioned earlier the, the new coach will have to figure out kind of like, what do we have here with, with Rajon Davis and I, I think I think during training camp I would have told you Manjack would have been a contributor yeah. uh, in, in some way but he just hasn't been there this season and I wrote a big Manjack feature in in August, and uh, you, you kind of figure out kind of what happened in between now and then, so where it just hasn't been there. Um, obviously, he was playing in that Drake London spot behind Drake, so he wasn't going to play a lot. But even since then, um, it hasn't worked out a ton. Um, I was always high on Jalen Smith, yeah, coming into the year, and I think people in the program some some said, "Hey, he's too small; he's going to redshirt," and then some told me they think he could play this year. Um, so I was always kind of high on him and always thought, you know, Greg Johnson hasn't been the most consistent player. So I think Jalen could find a role there, especially when Max Williams got hurt. Him playing hasn't really surprised me. I thought he'd be one of the, one of the contributors, but he just, he hasn't been the most consistent player either. He had that, he had that big hit against Charbonnet against UCLA on, on Saturday. And then the next play gets beat for a touchdown by Kyle Phillips. Um, so now there's, there's a lot of highs and lows with these freshmen. I think, obviously, during the spring, I think I would have put Kalen Bullock in as a contributor as well, um, just seeing him and the plays he was making. And he has contributed this year. 
still inconsistent like you would expect from a freshman. But overall, like I said, I don't think I don't think any of us had Max Gibbs as a as a main contributor for this freshman class uh, going into the year. Now, if I had to rank the freshmen uh, at this point and how they performed, I think obviously you start with Jackson Dart. It's an easy one. I would put Michael Trigg at number two. Even though it was a limited sample size, I think we saw what he could be at least. And then I think it's it's Bullock at three and probably Jalen Smith at four. And then I, I think five may be determined over the next two games with Michael Jackson the third or Lake McCree or maybe Manjack rallies back and gets more chance. I think one of those guys ends up at five. Am I missing anybody that would deserve top five merit aside from Max Gibbs? I was going through that right now. I don't think so. There's been no freshman offensive lineman that's played. There's uh, Lake McCree certainly played a little bit um, over the past couple of, over the past couple of games, and uh, it was the defensive lineman uh, Colin Mobley hasn't played a ton. The linebackers aren't playing, and it's just been the guys in the secondary. So uh, I think you covered all your bases there. Yeah, with the Corey Foreman thing, I. I really think that it's become clear that he and Vic Soto just haven't meshed very well, and it's not for me to assign uh, blame for why that hasn't been a better relationship. Uh, you could look at the fact that Vic is a very demanding coach and, and probably a little bit unyielding in his expectations, and you could you could start there, or you could say that you know it's. There's no harm in having uh, very high expectations and demanding a certain standard, and if you don't get it, then you react accordingly. So I, I just don't know. I would I would need to have you know more candid conversations about that to truly uh, get into the nitty gritty of it. But I think just the overview is to say that those two have not hit it off in the best way, and that maybe if there is a new coach. Maybe uh, Corey flourishes in a different way than he has this year. I still, if I'm a USC fan, I would still hold out hope that Corey Foreman can be the Corey Foreman that everyone was so excited about when he committed and signed. But I don't know that I have the same confidence that it's a guarantee just because you, you, you really would have thought you would have seen more signs this year. Um, he hasn't played a ton, so he hasn't had a lot of opportunity. If you look at the advanced metrics, you'll see that he ranks pretty high on the defense in terms of pressures created despite playing a fraction of snaps as the other guys. So there are positives. But I think I just go into the next year with a pretty clean slate and no defined expectations for Corey. I just wait and see what happens. Yeah, he's someone who hasn't played a lot of football now for two years. Yeah. So uh, this year he hasn't played a lot, and he didn't get to play last year, so – uh, someone you basically have to start new with, and um, this first year was definitely a learning year for him, and that's going to be one of the first players a new coach has to reach and connect with immediately to kind of, you know, try to unlock his potential. And because um, USC is going to need an edge rusher next year, or this defense is going to be rough again, um, just because they have Drake Jackson this year. Um, and they're still not a great pass rushing team or a great sack team, uh, so they need somebody to to fill that void next year. You really have to be counting on Nick Figueroa and Corey Foreman 
to be starters and, and key contributors because at this point, I mean, they just got a three-star DN commit in Devin Tompkins earlier this week, uh, but you're not going to land a, a blue-chip recruit at that position at this point. Uh, so it's kind of what you have. The, the Rajon Davis case is maybe the most baffling to me just because there's been so many opportunities to get guys in games and at least see what they can do. And, you know, I I go to the Xavion Alford point where we just didn't see a lot of him for a while, and now that he's getting a, a steady role. He keeps making plays and showing instincts. And maybe he's not perfect, but he's, he's, he's showing something. And I think that Rajon is a guy that his game is – uh, driven by instincts, and it's been one of his strengths. And I would love to just see him throwing in and, and see how he reacts. And they've had no curiosity to even see that. It's just the most confounding thing, especially when they've already chosen to burn his red shirt by playing him on, on special teams every game. So you, you burn the red shirt of your second highest rated prospect, and you don't even want to see him play defense. I just don't get it. Yeah, me neither. It's uh, I think that's the most confusing one. Um, out of the group just because he's this linebacker play like I said earlier just hasn't been great um, and while they may have some concern about what he knows and the guys who know stuff and know the playbook are performing so, so um, why not give it a shot and why not see what you have hold out hope there um, just kind of to recycle from my original list I still hold out hope for Mason Murphy developing down the road. I didn't see enough of him in practice uh, to really have a strong opinion. I just still like his upside. Brandon Campbell could certainly emerge next year and be a great tandem with Darwin Barlow. That's yet to be seen. The young receivers, we haven't seen Kyron Ware Hudson really at all because of the hamstring injury that kind of gave him a late start this year. He was a highly rated guy, so we can't levy a verdict there. Uh, Maybe a new coaching staff views Michael Jackson the third and, and Man Jack in a different way and we see them come to light. Um, and then, you know, the secondary that they signed, you know, those six four star guys. Five of them were in our rivals two fifty. So you have to think that they're gonna hit on a couple of those uh, as they develop and and move forward. So I just think it's too early to levy a verdict there, but certainly not the returns that we expected across the board and um, maybe some of that needs to fall on the coaching staff and a new coach comes in and, and is able to unlock some of that talent. But definitely a lot of interesting storylines and subplots that will emanate from this coaching hire once we get past the the who, what, and when, and then we get into the uh, where things go from here, where you're going to have an abundance to write and talk about and banter about on the message board. So while this may seem like rock bottom, as I put in my column, Certainly wasn't the only one to use that term Saturday. Dismal times right now, I think it will change the flip of a switch in a week or two weeks when we're shifting all discussion to the future and, and what is uh, ahead for this program instead of what is behind and what is at present. Definitely. I think, uh, uh, like you said, Saturday was rock bottom unless uh, – these next two games somehow managed to get worse. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, USC kind of tends to outdo itself every Saturday. So um, we'll see. But I think, obviously, the, the new coach will provide some optimism uh, for the future, and uh, we'll see how things go from there. 
great stuff. Uh, follow Antonino's work at The Athletic. He's always bringing great perspective and great feature stories and making me regret that I didn't pursue a certain angle quicker. So I'm always on edge as to what Antonio is working on, but you should definitely follow his work, and we'll uh, look forward to having him back on the podcast in the future to discuss all of this after we know where this program's going. Appreciate it, Antonio. And that is the show. Thanks again to Ryan Karchi and Antonio Morales for coming back on the pod and dropping great perspective for us. USC hosts PYU on Saturday night in the Coliseum. Uh, we will give our predictions, as always, in the weekly Trojan Sports Roundtable that will post Saturday morning. So although we didn't discuss it on the podcast, we will have some presence on the site for this game with BYU, number 13-ranked BYU, a BYU team that has four games of 220 rushing yards or more, which uh, is particularly worrisome for this USC defense. So we'll see if anything can change for these Trojans the last two weeks. But certainly all focus and and intrigue really on the coaching search, which one would think could wrap up as soon as this weekend, maybe next week. If not next week, then we start to really connect some dots and and guess who it could be or just start to panic. But let's let's, uh, see what happens before the panic sets in because I still have confidence that this will turn out just fine for the Trojans. And whatever happens, we will have a wave of content. We have been getting stuff prepped just in case the news comes sooner than expected. So you can go to trojansports.com and find plenty of commentary and analysis from all angles once this decision is made. We'll certainly come back with another podcast when the time is right. So as always, thank you for listening.